Hello, it's a pleasure to have your company and share the next 15 minutes or so on Search for Truth. This week, your Bible teacher Brian Johnston brings the final talk in this series called Our Relationship with Jesus Christ. At the completion of this eight-part series, Brian takes us into a spiritual insight of what it means to worship God in the way he commanded, that is, the Lord Jesus commanded, when he said, do this in remembrance of me. This being the manner in which we love to remember him in broken bread and poured out wine. The scripture we turn to first will be Paul's first letter to the Corinthians and chapter 11, and Jesus as the one we love to remember. So, over to you, Brian. Thanks, John. When the Apostle Paul gets to the 11th chapter of his first Bible letter to the Church of God at Corinth, he begins to deal with things that should lie at the very heart of every local biblical Christian testimony. In primary place among the recorded gatherings of the first Christians is their gathering to break bread so as to remember the Lord. After all, this was what he'd specifically asked them to do when he'd broken the bread and drunk the wine with them in the upper room. The Apostle Paul refers to it in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11. For I received, he says, from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This section is prefaced by a key phrase found in verse 18, and that is the wording, in the church, or in church. Or it may be translated in your version as, when you come together as a church. It's repeated three more times before we get to the end of chapter 14. It seems then that chapters 11 through 14 of 1 Corinthians form a unit that's central to this letter and it contains precious instruction on topics which the Lord clearly places as central to our local church function, but none more central than the breaking of the bread. Now, the Apostle Paul has already begun from the very top of this chapter by talking to us about an order which encompasses even the Trinity itself. Listen carefully to what he says. This is verse 2 of the same chapter. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Some have wondered if Paul's use of the word head here could mean source instead of meaning authority. But in no sense could God be described as being the source of Christ. So it's important to understand the order given here is in terms of an authority structure, especially because that's going to shape the argument which Paul now outlines. Verse 4. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head... Let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. 
these two parallel statements require that a man uncovers his head while praying or prophesying, and conversely, that a woman covers hers. So having clarified the actual practice which Paul's instruction was insisting upon, let's again remind ourselves that what introduces this is the hierarchy of authority relationships given in the order God, Christ, man and woman. From that explanation of an order extending into the Trinity itself, Paul now turns to a second explanation for the practice of head coverings in church. And this time he picks up on God's order in creation. This is what he says in verse 7, For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. In these verses we've just read, Paul shares a major key for interpreting this whole passage. Its significance is all too readily overlooked, but it's this. If a man ought not to have his head covered because he's the image and glory of God, then clearly these instructions go way beyond any local or cultural boundary, and they must apply in all truly biblical churches of God at any time and in any place where they exist. And we should observe that this fundamental point of man being the image and glory of God is used to support the actual practice of head coverings, not only the principle of male headship. But what was it that we're meant to conclude from all this? Was it not firstly that a man wears no covering because he's God's glory? This means God's glory is uncovered, even as God is subject to no one. Secondly, that a woman wears a covering for she is man's glory. This means man's glory is covered, even as the man is subject to Christ. And so the glory again goes to God instead. And thirdly, that a woman wears a covering, which also means that her personal glory, her hair, is covered. So women in church cover their heads, and men uncover theirs in order that God gets the glory in each case, in accordance with the hierarchy of authority with which this section began in verse 3. Finally, Paul now sweeps away any possible variations in practice. He says that the Church of God in Corinth must keep in step with the universal practice of men's heads being uncovered and women's heads being covered, which then applied throughout the Churches of God. Far from this being a local custom specific to Corinth, it was the single, consistent practice throughout the entire first century fellowship of churches all around the Mediterranean. And the actual practice of head coverings is corroborated by the archaeological record. Second and third century pictures from the catacombs show Christian women praying with a cloth veil on their heads. The teaching of 1 Corinthians 11 and from verse 2 to verse 16 that we've looked at, that teaching belongs to those occasions when the church comes together as a church, literally in the church or in church. We can be sure of this because Paul speaks of prophesying primarily in the context of edifying the whole church. Head coverings are after all described as being a church practice, and a practice is only unmistakably a church practice as opposed to a personal habit when it's viewed in the context of whole church gatherings. And when in verse 17, at the beginning of the verse, Paul refers to this instruction, experts judge he's probably referring to the preceding one about the headdress of women. And the second half of that 
same verse, verse 17, ties it into times when the church comes together. Finally, since the succeeding verses of chapter 11 are devoted to the breaking of bread ordinance, which is definitely designed for the whole church, it would naturally seem that this preceding section also applies to those times when the church comes together as a church. But let's check out from verse 34 what else applies to these church gatherings, such as for the breaking of the bread. There we read, The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognise that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognise this, he is not recognised. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Again, opinions have differed on the intended meaning of this section of 1 Corinthians 14. The Bible states that women are not permitted to speak when the church gathers together as a church, plainly seeming to say that it's not given to women to take the lead in any church service in any audible, authoritative way. This agrees with what we find in 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 and 12, where we read a woman must quietly receive instruction. Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach. Perhaps the first comment we should make is that this text appears in all known manuscripts, so it's hard to minimise the force of these verses. There again, it surely has to be accepted that the statement, they are not allowed to speak, takes the form of an absolute rule. So what about the application of the text? Is it limited to the evaluation of prophecies only? That is, is Paul saying that women may not participate in the oral weighing up of such prophecies as he's been dealing with in the immediate preceding context? Paul is at pains to ensure that the restriction which he's making doesn't mean that the women cannot learn. This implies that it was a learning activity in which they were engaged, not the activity of publicly weighing up prophecies. Paul's summing up actually begins at verse 26, when he goes on to give practical guidelines for the ordering of both the gifts of tongues and prophesying when the early New Testament churches assembled together. Various in-church speaking roles are then listed in terms of exclusively masculine pronouns until Paul begins to address the women folk in verse 34, and then it's in order to explicitly confirm that they are not permitted to speak. Some think Paul was advocating a practice unique to Corinth, which means we can legitimately ignore it. Nothing could be further from the truth. Corinth was being asked to come into line with what all the other New Testament churches were already doing. Paul says, are you the only people the word of God has reached? Paul asks if they are not troubled by the fact that all the other churches have put the same instruction into a different ecclesiastical practice. We could ask ourselves the same question today. Oh
Thanks, Brian, and I hope you enjoyed Brian's talk today and this series if you've been following over the last couple of months. And again, if you've got any comments or questions for Brian, do get in touch using the uh, contact details I give you shortly. There's also the transcript book that's available, and uh, you can request it by asking for the title uh, Relationship with Jesus Christ. And you can order this book by email or by post, and here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wooten Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. Many Search for Truth transcript booklets have been turned into ebooks and are available at amazon.co.uk forward slash kindle hyphen ebooks. If you just type search for truth series into the search box, you'll be able to obtain them. Now that's almost the end of today's programme and the end of another series. Once again, many thanks for the privilege of your company. We'd be delighted if you could join us next week for the start of a new series, God willing. So until then, it's very best wishes from our Bible teacher Brian, our studio technician David, our singers and me, John. So bye for now and may God richly bless you. Amen.